What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Ball podcast. I am your host, Trill Bro Dude, and today I was lucky enough to be joined by Joe Wolfon and Joseph Cacharo of the Pound the Rock podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. And they came on to talk about the Sixers Raptors series and specifically why the Raptors have been such a pain in the ass for the Sixers and can the Sixers get over the hump and beat them and make it to potentially a conference finals or a finals this year. Now, as I get further removed from actually watching the Sixers play real basketball, I feel like I do this every year during like this downtime is that I talk myself back into the team. <laughs> like I wasn't feeling great about it at the end of the season. And now that I've had a few days to kind of sit without the team and I get further removed from that, I feel like I'm talking myself back into them. It's a sickness that lives within me and all Sixers fans. It is just something that we cannot help. And I'm hoping that I'm right and that by Saturday I will probably have talked myself into the Sixers winning the finals over the Suns or something insane that probably won't happen. But I still stand by my opinion that this is the better side to go on with the Raptors in the heat. If they can't beat the Raptors in the heat, they sure as hell aren't beating the real contenders, which are on the other side of the bracket as the Nets won last night. They'll face the Celtics in the first round, which should be an awesome, awesome series. The play-in in general was just a lot of fun. I felt like it reminded me of why playoff basketball is so great, even though technically it's not really playoff basketball, but with Kyrie Irving going off, then both games pretty much coming down to the wire, and Patrick Beverly acting like the Minnesota Timberwolves won the finals afterwards. It was absolutely hysterical and just a lot of fun. The crowds were awesome, very into it, and I am looking forward to our NBA's drunk stream this Friday as two teams fight for the eight spot on each conference, and we will be hanging out, getting drunk, talking about the games, and I will be making my playoff predictions, including that net Celtic series and some other first-round series, and who will actually make the final. So I'm not going to do a podcast on that. You will have to tune in to the NBA is Drunk this Friday on our YouTube page. We're trying to build up the following on there. And if you could, I would really, really appreciate it. Also, we're just going to have some guests on, some people from the Discord, some people from Twitter, and we're going to be doing the hot take seat where we have people on to give their hot takes and probably try to break my brain and make me really mad in the process. So that should be fun. We're going to be doing a lot of stuff on there. Please, please join us for that. If you can, this Friday night, we're going to be doing it during both play-in games, so it should be a lot of fun. You know all the other stuff. You can rate us. You can do all that stuff. You can donate in the square in the description. You can do everything. I would really, really appreciate it if you could. And on top of that, you know the vibes. We had fucking technical difficulties on this episode. There were some connection issues, so there was one part of the podcast that my editor, Eric, did a great job of editing out. So. Please forgive me for that. And uh, most of this episode ended up making it through and it was a great episode. Really enjoyed having Joe and Joseph on. And it was just a lot of fun, to be honest. Like, I, I'm really, really looking forward to the playoffs. And hopefully the Sixers don't ruin this fun for me. And they can just get by and we can enjoy the playoffs as a whole due to that. So thank you once again for your support. And always remember to like and subscribe and do all the things that I hate promoting at the top, but I have to. So I'll talk to you soon. We work to work, you like to work, I highlight in the Senate. You know my pride was called the Chicago in December. My bitch came up.
My dog out laying them low, ain't breaking none laws, I'll serve not a rock. Beats outside, still fucking in the car, still flipping in the car, still shooting at the car. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the You Know Ball podcast. I am your host, Trill Bro Dude. And today I am very excited to have on, well, not very excited because this has actually been my nightmare for quite some time. Before we get into everything, I, I want to introduce my guests. We have the Pound the Rock guys, one of my favorite NBA podcasts that I listen to every week. A few weeks ago, Cash, I just want to bring this up. A few weeks ago, while Wolfon was on break, I went on your guys' podcast. And I was the co-host. And you and me were talking up the Sixers. We were talking about finals. We were talking about everything. And since then, the Sixers have seemingly fell apart in front of our eyes. James Harden does not look the same. And I just want to say, I think that that podcast, that moment in time, just completely jinxed the Sixers. And everything has fallen apart since then. Well, what you've discovered is the pound the rock curse. Now, usually it's the pound the rock reverse curse. It's the blessing. Uh, I called Paul George the Tin Man, and he grew yes. a heart. And then he grew a heart and and, and looked amazing. I said uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo sticking with the Bucks made him a loyal loser, <laughs> and he instantly became a loyal winner. And then yeah, these all sound like cash takes to me. I don't know why this is the pound the rock reverse. <laughs> yeah, you want to revisit? You want to revisit your 2020 curse. the heater frauds thing? Um, so, hey, listen, still true by the way. Um, the only right. fraudulent finals team in NBA history. Correct. Um, but yeah, so it's it just seems like usually um, I reverse curse or bless people when I when I rag on them, and and this time I just heaped so much praise on the Sixers and their pursuit and landing of James Harden and Harden, the way he looked in that first, what, 10 days where we were both waxing poetic, that whole podcast about how he was back. He had fooled the nets. He was healthy the whole time. And uh turns out maybe, no, maybe we were wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, it does seem that way. Um, By the way, Wolfon totally agree with your take. And I'm also thinking here that, that might have been a little bit intentional. Cash might have been looking at the standings because I saw a few days after that, you know, you guys are Toronto guys. You know, I know you cover the NBA and you're very objective. That's what I like about your podcast. I think that you guys do a very good job of taking your biases out to, you know, we all have biases, but you guys do a good job of separating yourself from, you know, maybe the teams that you cover a little bit more than than the rest of the league. And I just want to say that the the whole thing that happened between now and then has been obviously James Harden's health, all that stuff. And the Raptors really shooting up the standings because seemingly like, I I don't know where, where this team came from because a few weeks ago when we were even talking about it on the podcast a month, month and a half ago, I didn't even have the Raptors on my radar. Really? I think you guys were like, I think that they were some, I could say you guys, you know, whatever you, that Toronto was in like, the play-in range most of the season they were in the lower half of the play-in range and then down the stretch of the season they make this kind of storming comeback so Wolfon why don't you talk a little bit about the Raptors and what turned their season around I think first and foremost it's it's Pascal's ascendance like the the craziest thing about it is post all-star break Fred Van Vliet offensively has like completely fallen apart and I think the defense has still been there for him. And like, that's, that's, what's great about Fred is uh, I think rare is the point guard in the NBA who can still provide a lot of value for you. If he's not doing it at the offensive end and he's still been instrumental 
to their defense, which in the second half of the season has been basically top five in the league. Um, that's been a huge part of it because they play this really high wire defensive scheme where they're showing a ton of help. You know, they double the post super aggressively. They dig down on every single drive. Basically they pull help off of the corner and they're in rotation constantly. And they start out the season doing this with a team that like hadn't played together very much, a bunch of inexperienced players and the defense was bad. Uh, And they totally corrected that in the second half. And I think that's been a big part of it. And then you have like Pascal, with with Fred laboring, just taking on this huge offensive load and playing the best basketball of his career. He's been shooting the ball better. His touch from like not just around the rim, but like out to floater range, out to like 16, 18 feet has been absolute money. Um, they've been sticking him in the post and kind of letting him either score or play make from that position. Like he has completely like put the Raptors offense on his shoulders and and gotten them across the finish line in a lot of these games. And then just from like a team-wide perspective, they do this thing that I wrote about early in the season, which is like they try to just like game out the possession battle where we know we don't have the shot making. Like, I don't know what it is now. I, I actually didn't look today, which I should have, but uh, I think the last time I checked, their opponent's effective field goal percentage was like four percentage points higher than theirs. And if you think about that being the case for a team that won 48 games, it's kind of brain melting. The way they do that is they pummel the offensive glass. They force a ton of turnovers and they turn the ball over very rarely themselves. So what winds up happening is they get outshot, but it doesn't wind up mattering because they take like 10 more shots than their opponents do. And that's, sort of a way that they can kind of, I don't know, they've, they've like found a loophole, I guess, where they have all these players that are, are like uniquely equipped to execute this um, completely unique style of play where the objective is just, we're just going to, we're just going to get way more shooting possessions than you are. And it's like the last, the last game against Philly, you guys shot what, like, 19 for 35 from three, I think. Yeah, Danny Green turned back into finals. Danny Green from that series years ago where he like broke the record and it, it, it didn't feel like we could miss. We started the game like six for six from yeah. three. And it was like, 17 2 after like four minutes. Yeah, like it was like, oh, this is going to be an easy one. And of course, it never is with the Doc Rivers coach team, especially going up against a Nick Nurse coach team. But it did feel as though that, that, you know, generally speaking, when teams shoot that well from three, they're going to win the game. That's just kind of how things go in the NBA. And kind of just going off of what you were talking about, like, this is such a Nick Nurse coach basketball team in that regard. Yeah. Like, I've joked before, I've called Nick Nurse a basketball fascist because <laughs> I think that he will f- find everything that he and I mean it as a compliment. I know that sounds yeah. ridiculous. But it's like because one of the things when I when I look forward to watching a basketball game as the fan of a Sixers, uh, just generally speaking, is like when we go up against opponents that I know we can exploit things against. So when we go up against Chicago, I know Joel is going to exploit them, their interior defense. I know that just generally speaking, that's a really good matchup. And that was something that I was looking forward to, hopefully, in this first round of the playoffs. But going up against Toronto, it's exactly what you're talking about. Nick Nurse will figure out your weaknesses. 
He will grind the game down and he will figure out a way to get more offense, whether it's offensive rebounds or get, getting the team out running. Like that's one of the things that they've done very effectively against the Sixers, a slower team, an older team, yeah. and just kind of like winning on everything on the margins basically is, is the way to put it because the Sixers, while they might have the star power, it's an incredibly flawed roster construction. Like, the things that we do poorly are the things that you guys do well. And that's something that Cash, you wrote about in your article that I just read for the score, which is basically why it's like such a matchup nightmare for the Sixers. Because although you would look at the rosters and you go, well, they have Joel Embiid and James Harden and the Raptors, you know, Siakam's had a great ascendance, as you guys have said, in the second half of the season. But no one would think, because of the star power of the Sixers, that they would have any business losing this. But as you wrote, and all the things that Wolfon touched on, like, it really does feel as though this series could easily go seven, or the Raptors could easily just win the series in, in six or seven. Yeah, I mean... Again, they they have the Sixers have Joel Embiid and James Harden. They have, and you know, no matter what you think of James Harden right now, there's no argument that the Sixers have the best player in the series in Joel Embiid. For as awesome as Pascal Siakam has been, Joel Embiid has just been like on another stratosphere this year. And usually, if you're looking at it and it's like, okay, well, Team A is one the better team with the better record with home court advantage, and they have by far the best player in the series, an MVP candidate in a year where there was three just like out-of-this-world MVP candidates, you look at it and think, all right, like realistically, Team B is just kind of there to maybe put up a fight. But th that's not the case here, and it's because of, yes, all the things I outlined in the piece you're talking about, um, what Wolfon outlined there, and I included that in the piece as well, like the, the math advantage that Toronto finds because of the way they play. Um, and then also, you know, something I put in there is <laughs> this Sixers team is, I think what I wrote was that they're they're uniquely equipped to fold when when things start piling up against them. And if the advantage was so sizable that maybe that wouldn't matter as much, you know, if it was like, all right, maybe the Raptors can take a game off them or it'd be like a competitive sweep or something. I don't think that matters as much. But when they end up drawing a team where, like I said, it for a lot of reasons in this matchup, it is their worst nightmare for a first round opponent. When they draw a team like that, and now you can be pretty confident that this is not going to be a sweep or even a five game. Like the Raptors will push them. Whether they can actually beat them or not, I guess we'll find out. But they can push them. They can, they can bring up a lot more adversity than any title contender wants to see in the first round. I don't care who you are. And then you look at the Sixers track record, you know, not to hate on these guys, but it, it like, it's just the facts. Okay. I know you're obviously not Doc Rivers biggest fan to put it mildly. Yeah. Facts are Doc Rivers coach teams have blown three, three, one series leads in the last seven years. He's lost more, more game sevens than any coach in history. There are a lot of reasons, forget the narrative part, there are a lot of reasons like basketball-wise and tactics-wise, and, and you watch the way he manages his team, where he should concern Sixers fans. That's one. Uh, James Harden, as I, get, as, as I wrote in that piece, while James Harden at his best significantly raises the Sixers' ceiling, there is no doubt about that, he does nothing to address the fact that this team is uniquely equipped to fold when times are tough because James Harden historically, whether you want to say elimination games or just when his team's backs against the wall in the playoffs, whether it's indifference or exhaustion or I, I don't know, some combination of the two, he does not exactly sh consistently show up in those moments. Um, yep. Tobias Harris, I think Wolf on and I have both discussed the fact that like 
Wolf One wouldn't put it in these words. Maybe I, maybe I would, but like he's kind of allergic to big games and big yeah, moments. Yeah, he is. No, you're um, totally right. And then look, this is the one thing where I think maybe Wolf One might disagree a, a bit more on. But even in beat, who look as his career has gone on, I've definitely come more around him. I, there's no doubt he's right now one of the two, three at worst, like four best players in basketball, probably top two. Um, and I give him credit for all that. And I completely agree that a lot of his struggles in the playoffs or in elimination games can definitely be attributed at least in part to the way the team is built around him and the incompetence of his teammates. But I also think that when you're the franchise player, there is a certain level you have to at least like at a baseline level, give your team in, in moments like that. And I don't think Embiid has consistently done it. I included it in that piece. He's played seven career elimination games. He's shot 42% from the field in those games, turned the ball over 35 times compared to 15 assists. And again, not saying that's all on him. Some of that obviously has to do with his teammates and the construction, the roster construction around him. But you cannot just dismiss that. Like there is no team in the NBA that could consistently win those games when the franchise player is putting up numbers like that. So I do think... There's a bit of a prove-it factor here for Embiid, too, if the Sixers are against the wall and they face that adversity early. Because, look, you, sure, it's still not a perfect roster construction, but and James Harden might not be what he once was, but between Harden and Max, like, it's better than it's been at other times. Like, you can't, he can't put up a stinker like that in an elimination game and then just have everyone say, well, you know, they didn't surround him with enough talent. Like, I think there are a lot of reasons, Embiid included, where if I'm a Sixers fan, I'm a little nervous about having to face that kind of adversity early um, and having, you know, potentially backs against the wall in April when this team is trying to get to June. Yeah, and I think that there's context to everything with the Embiid thing, everything you brought up with the weird Ben Simmons stuff and with the Sixers never having closers like they have right now. But also it is worth pointing out that even though this team has the most perimeter creation offensively we've seen, removing some players from the team, adding some other players to the team has created a different flaw. The, the Sixers' flaws are now basically the complete opposite of what they were before. Their perimeter defense and their just general offensive rebounding, getting out and transition defense. And while Joel Embiid, and we've seen him step up his playoff defense and all that in the past – he can't be the one-man defense that you need him to be at all times. He can't do, you know, we've seen it, the flaws with the big man in the playoffs. You know, Rudy Gobert is the prime example of a guy like when you don't have great perimeter defenders in front of you, he can't do everything at all times. Now, one of the things that I do think that I give, everyone gives Embiid a little bit of a pass because although he has struggled in elimination games and big games, I do think that there the context to that is that he was the reason that they were even in those games to begin with, which is why I think a lot of people do give him the benefit of the doubt. They tend to win the Embiid minutes in the playoffs. They did in the Hawks series. They did in the Raptors series. Figuring out the other stuff. The non-Embiid minutes. I don't know how wide of a margin they'll win the Embiid minutes by. I joked that they could win by 150 and we could still lose the series. Like, there could be multiple games where they just win the Embiid minutes and they win the game. And then the other games come down to this. this that's essentially what happened in the Hawks series. Like, the games that the Sixers won, the Sixers won pretty convincingly. And then the Hawks were able to scrap out every single close game. And once again... While just want to just want to throw one thing out there. Uh, game six and seven of that series, Joel Embiid also combined for 16 turnovers. 
Yeah, he and that's one of the things that, that, that he needs to work on. And I think that specifically against Toronto, there is something I don't know. I know that Nick Nurse is a great coach and that you guys have the personnel to kind of go up against the Sixers and the Embiid centered offense, but also and especially with Harden being the guy, like everything that Wolfon talked about basically in his little rant at the beginning was talking about, you know, all the things that the Sixers kind of center their offense around. Harden's going to center his game around driving and kicking. He's going to center his game around getting to the rim. He doesn't have a mid-range game. If the step back three isn't falling and he can't get to the line, which I don't, based on how he shot the step back three recently, and I'm assuming that historical free throw rate, which is mind-boggling, is not going to carry over into the playoffs. This, if the Sixers choose to run the offense more through Embiid, which has been effect, very effective, that the Raptors have a lot of things that they can counter in there. And I think that the reason why, like, I don't know, what does Nick Nurse do? Like, what what voodoo does Nick Nurse have over Joel Embiid? Because it, it seems like, I while the stats on the surface look good, if you watch these games it seems like he can uniquely fluster Joel Embiid in a way that no other coach can. I Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think, look, I think Nick Nurse's creativity is definitely a part of it. I don't want to take anything away from him. I think it helps that, you know, in 2019, the Raptors traded for the Embiid solver, the Embiid, like sure. Marcus Gasol had his name. But I also think, now, and then you look at this year's roster and, the um the length and the versatility and and just the revolving door of guys that they can send out there like they're not covering him in single coverage they have a very unique roster that is capable of putting extreme pressure on the ball but also swarming Joel Embiid half a second later um you know like the one undersized guy in this rotation is Fred Van Vliet who just so happens to be one of the best defenders at the point of attack and also one of the best guys when it comes to doubling the post and like prying turnovers from big men like Joel Embiid I just think the roster is very uniquely equipped to um to give him different looks and to more than make up for the fact that he's got an obvious visible size advantage over anyone that he matches up with on the Raptors but that can be negated if he's got two or three guys around him consistently. And it can be negated when he's got two or three guys around him consistently, but it doesn't necessarily mean that then there's a wide open shot for the Sixers because the Raptors have the ability to fly around and close. Like they're a very uniquely equipped team defensively. And to Wolfon's point earlier, like early in the season, just because they were equipped to do it, they weren't actually doing it. They weren't succeeding at doing it. I think that changed as the season went on. Even Siakam, like the ground he's covering on defense again is, is kind of out of this world. They've got all these different bodies that they can throw at Embiid and throw at the ball. And I, I think Harden, uh, this is the worst possible matchup for him. Um, so Nick Nurse deserves a lot of credit. I've always given him credit for just how creative of, of a defensive mind he is. But I do also think it clearly helps that they've just got this team of six nine swiss army knives and then plus fred van vliet and gary trent jr on the perimeter it's a pretty nice um collection to have when you have a coach like nick nurse to deploy them in the way he wants to yeah i okay first off because i got a lot to say about all of that but like the a lot of important context i think with the mb turnover numbers especially in that hawk series where like the entire offense is revolving around him like it, down the stretch of those games, nobody else is doing anything. 
I'm not saying like I'm not absolving him of responsibility for being careless with the basketball, but when you are like a big man who's primarily like catching the ball in the middle of the floor, like mid post around the nail or with your back to the basket and doubles are coming at you from every direction and you're just like not getting any help from your perimeter players. Like it would be really, really difficult to go through that without committing a bunch of turnovers. So like that's part of the reason I give him a pass for that. Like I just, I I watched that series and I like just my heart broke for him because he was playing his heart out on like a bad knee and just didn't, and just didn't get the help that he needed. So I feel that the, like the Embiid like playoff struggles have been really overstated, especially in that Toronto series when, yeah, he didn't have a great offensive series. And yeah, I think, you know, Marcus all deserves credit for that, but like calling him the, the Embiid solver when Embiid was look, plus 90 in that series. But look, look at on, Embiid. That was, it wasn't just that series. Look at Embiid's numbers against Gasol throughout his career. That was not a, that was not a two week thing when they, yeah, it was really until Gasol was like completely washed that right. it was like yeah. one of two or three matchups that he really struggled with probably the most in terms of at least as a scorer. Right. For sure. So so here's what I'll say about like what it is about the Raptors or Nick Nurse, I guess, that that allows them or has allowed them to defend and beat effectively in the past. And and this is something that bugs me just about like the way that people talk about this stuff as if it's just like a mono mono thing. And if your team doesn't have this like hulking center who can hold down Joel Embiid in single coverage, as if any center in the league can do that, exactly. you know, then, then he's going to eat, right? Like it takes a village to guard Joel. And you're never going to be able to do it in single coverage. Like, does it help to have somebody like Marcus all who can maybe push him out a little bit further on the catches. And then when the help is coming, it can come from the top instead of from the baseline. Maybe it can be like a dig or a stunt instead of a hard double. Like that really helps with the Raptors. I think it's, it's easier for them to, to help and recover because of their length and their speed. And I think also, you know, like I was talking about before when, they're playing this wild frenetic defensive scheme when they're showing a ton of help and like asking themselves to recover and have these pinpoint rotations. They went through a month this season when they were like, I think 29th in the league in defensive efficiency, like one of the absolute worst teams in basketball before they finally figured it out. And this is why I think they go through a month like that, why they're willing to go through a month like that. And I give Nick Nurse and the Raptors a ton of credit for sticking to their guns when personally, like I've been critical of them in the past for just going like way overboard with the extent to which they help and overhelp sometimes. And I'm like, you do, you do not need to be throwing this much attention at the ball. You do not need to be putting yourself in rotation like this, especially like, like they'll do it against non-threatening ball handlers and non-threatening post players. And I think they do it because they want it to be practiced and they want it to be nailed down by the time the games get really important. And so what you have, and like, I, I really appreciate the point that cash made about Fred, right? You, you don't think about, Oh, the Sixers are matching up with the Raptors. You don't think about how Fred Van Vliet is going to impact the matchup against Joel Embiid, but he does. And pretty much everybody on the Raptors does in their own way, because all of them are going to be involved in help. And all of them are going to be involved in the rotations that come after they double the ball. And um, I think, you know, they do a really good job of mixing up those doubles and where they're coming from. And I think Embiid, like, has had a difficult time reading that in the past. 
And I think they do a good job of, you know, if he's going to kick it out, if he's going to break that double, we want to make sure that the ball is like staying on the same side of the floor. Like, I think actually one thing MB has gotten way better at this season is when he is kicking out of a double, like he is finding the numbers advantage on the weak side. He's gotten so much better at that. But I think the Raptors do a really good job of closing off those passing lanes and making sure it's like, yeah, you might you might spit the ball back out to like the entry passer, but you're not going to gain some massive massive advantage by doing that. Yeah, and I think that there it's actually funny because I I felt as though there was one play in I believe it was the Raptors game where he found Shake Milton on the other side of the court through a perfect uh, cross court pass into Shake's shooting pocket and Shake nailed a three. Like that wasn't happening before. Like he was never making those reads. He was never able to react in that way. But there there has been a I'm a, been a little bit concerned because as the season has worn on and as he as he has worn on down the stretch, he's making a little bit more of those mental errors as we get closer to the playoffs. And this is something that they'll have to solve going into a series against a team like the Raptors. Cash, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I was going to say too, and I think part of the reason um, that Embiid does end up turning the ball over the way he does, maybe in late in those playoff series, in the elimination games, to Wolf one's point, obviously the load on him is is unfair, and he doesn't have the perimeter help um, to mitigate that. But I think part of it too is, and I'm not even saying it's like bad conditioning. I just think maybe the way he like he's a huge dude, he yeah. does seem to get tired and like wear down, which understandably so under the weight of like the two-way burden this team places on his shoulders and that's another reason why like drawing a team that you know I've called a matchup nightmare and that might push you to the limit in round one is worst case scenario for the Sixers because like you do not need to be putting any more miles that need to go on that body like in April right again if you're trying Agreed. to get to June and, and even to your point like yeah I, I wrote earlier in the year about how Embiid had somewhat fixed his turnover issues and how he had accomplished the really rare feat of upping his usage upping his assist percentage and lowering his turnover percentage like he had taken on more control of the offense while getting better turnover wise but as the season wore on and perhaps as he did start to get tired or whatever the case may be the turnovers did start creeping up again and that would concern me if I'm the Sixers even in terms of what we were talking about with Fred and stuff so Embiid had uh, one really really good game against the Raptors this year he played three of the four games Philly went one and two in those games the first game he played against the Raptors the Sixers won by five they dominated the Embiid minutes and he just destroyed them in that game, the Raptors were missing Van Vliet, Ananobi, Barnes, Achua, and obviously they didn't have Fat Young yet. But um, in the two games Embiid played and they lost to the Raptors, the Raptors still didn't have Van Vliet and Ananobi, but they had everyone else. And in those two games, Embiid shot 38% from the field, recorded more turnovers and assists, and the Raptors won. Again, and they still didn't have Van Vliet and Ananobi. So like, You've already seen him struggle with some of the things the Raptors have always thrown at him, which they were still able to do while missing those two guys just because of the roster they have. But he hasn't even seen their full complement defensively yet because Van Vliet is a big part of that, as you know, weird as that may seem to people that don't watch the Raptors and just look at the listed height or whatever. And Anunobi, obviously, is another one of those guys that can help swarm him off the ball. Like, 
again, it's, I don't want to, I feel like if people are, have listened this far, they're thinking like my next thing is going to be raps in four, which was a joke. <laughs> Even though I put that in the, like, we'll, we'll get to the predictions at the end. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, this is all rap. I'll, clearly, as I said at the beginning, the Sixers have the better team on paper. They have the best player in the series, but there were just so many things, whether we're talking Embiid, whether we're talking about Harden, having to try to create some semblance of an advantage against a defense that I really don't think is best suited for him to create those advantages. Like so many things. He, can't be, he couldn't like, be precious off the dribble. And I'm right, like, how are right. you going to do when we're throwing OG and Fred Van Fleet? Like there is legitimate concern regarding yeah. the advantage creation for Harden because of the things that he relies on that the Raptors switching defense is going to give him problems with when the bigs can yeah. even keep up with him in space. Yeah. Pre- precious is a different dude, man. Like he, he might be the Raptors' best one-on-one defender at this point in time, which is crazy to say, but, like, because they have OG Ananobi on the team. and like, yeah, you know, I, don't Pascal, watch the, I don't watch them nearly enough to, like, really say, but when he wasn't beating pressures off the dribble, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's... Yeah, like, Peak Harden is still probably beating Precious off the bounce or at least putting him in a compromising enough position that Precious is going to, like, send him to the line or the Raptors are going to have to send help and it's going to be a kickout, but... Uh, Precious moves his feet incredibly well. Like it's not, there are a lot of guards who have not been able to beat Precious off the bounce this season. That makes me feel better. Uh, (laughs) But I think, you know, that, that, that does, for me, I'm thinking like the, the, a really interesting battleground I think is going to be the turnover stuff because that's been a huge problem for the Sixers in the past, but actually this season, they're like top 10, I think in limiting their own turnovers. And I think, Obviously, part of that is like they they play a lot of one-on-one ball, whether it's Embiid in the post or it's Harden just isoing. And I think it's it'll be interesting because the Raptors like don't care if you just ISO, right? Like they'll still find a way to speed you up and and force turnovers because like they're just gonna like pressure the hell out of the ball. So I'm interested to see like how much how much like ISO ball are the Sixers going to play and to what extent can the Raptors still turn that into like a, a, a frenetic scramble situation where they're going to find opportunities to jump passing lanes and go the other way. Because um, part of the reason they, they do pressure so much on defense and do try so hard to force turnovers is their, their half court offense sucks. Like they need to play in transition. They need same, they need re- same reason they crash the offensive glass. There you go. So uh, they they rely on that at both ends. Like it's not just about their defense; that's about their offense too. So they're going to need to find ways to like, okay, the Sixers want to like pound it one on one. They want to pound it to Joel in the post, or they want to just give it to Harden and let him dance on the perimeter and go one on one. I think, like, th- their best sort of isolation option in this matchup might be Maxi because yes. he's the guy. He's the guy that I don't think anybody on the Raptors can actually stay in front of. The problem with that is like, okay, you're giving you you want to like make Maxi the focal point of your offense, like let him ISO and that be the thing that you're doing. Like, what's Harden doing in that situation? Is he like relocating off the ball and making himself a target for a kickout? And like, is he going to shoot catch and shoot three? He did that one time, and we talked about it on the <laughs> podcast. And I was like, what is what is happening? I was going to say, I swear to you, he did it twice in the first game he played as a sixer and it yeah. it surprised me so goddamn much that i wrote about it like two hours <laughs> later so i was like oh my god that's it like so, harden harden has found basketball nirvana in philadelphia and it lasted approximately like 36 hours 
Of course, because this is the Sixers. This is what happens. The the catch the catch and shoot stuff drives me fucking nuts with Harden because, like, okay, Tobias Harris is another guy that the Raptors have challenged in the past to shoot those open shots. They've been willing to leave him open on the perimeter to to double and beat in the post. This was even before we got Harden. They would do this regularly. I think there are a lot of guys that they felt confident with leaving alone. Harden's seeming refusal to shoot catch and shoot threes. And I don't even think it's like a Tobias Harris thing where like Tobias like is a 40% catch and shoot guy. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. Harden, because he's never had to do this throughout his career is actually not even that good at them. So it's one of those things where I think that the Raptors would tend to leave those guys open on the perimeter because they're going to be the ones that reset the possessions. Like, mm. I don't think there's going to be a lot of times where they're going to leave Danny Green wide open unless they have to, and then they can hope that they can rotate back to him and, and make him hit a contested three. Same with Tyrese Maxey, just because of their length and speed and everything we've talked about. But Tobias and Harden are going to be the two guys that I think the Raptors are going to challenge to just leave completely open on the perimeter and make them shoot those catch and shoot threes because they don't want to do it. Like they might be able to do it. And like, in theory, James Harden should be able to be a 40% catch and shoot guy, but he just isn't. And like, it's not part of his game. And because of that, I think that the offense, like I do, the one thing I do feel good about uh, going into this series is the Sixers half court offense in over the course of seven games. Now they're going to have certain games where the half court offense, everything that Toronto does to slow them down is going to work for sure. hundred percent. There's going to be other games where they shoot the way that they did the other night. There's going to be other games where, like, I know it's an extremely, extremely small sample because Doc is kind of the opposite of Nick Nurse in that he will kind of, like, over the course of the regular season, he's actually just, like, he he's not flexible by any means. He's not going to try out different shit. He's not going to do whatever. And... Because of that, like we only got to see Danny Green in the starting lineup, which was something I wanted to see. And this was before the Thibault. This was before all the vaccination stuff came out. The Thibault wouldn't be able to play in three games in the series. And it was something I wanted to see because I'm like, when guarding the pick and roll, you have Harden and Embiid running the pick and roll. And if you have Danny Green spacing in the corner instead of Matisse Thibault, it's a completely different world for your offense. And once again, small sample. They shot the lights out to start that Rafters game. They shot the lights out in another game. They were shooting like 50% from three with Danny Green, uh, Harden, and uh, and Embiid on the court together. But they have a 135 offensive rating in that very, very small sample. So the one thing I do feel as though the Sixers have a massive advantage on in the Raptors going into the series is that half court offense because the fact that everything you guys talked about with the creation struggles that the Raptors have had in the half court and because they have to essentially out hustle you get out running and then uh, dominate on the offensive glass that I do feel as though that the Sixers main advantage in this series is going to be that half court offense, especially with Danny Green starting. I mean, it should be, they, they should have the half court offensive over the Raptors in the series couple things that I'm really interested to see. One is, um, like, we talked about the way the Raptors can thrive in transition uh, and perhaps against a Sixers team that might be prone to turn the ball over, although they haven't necessarily shown that this year. And the Sixers obviously live at the free throw line between Joel Embiid and James Harden, two guys that are as unguardable without fouling as two guys we've seen in history. But both those things are things that usually 
you can point to in the playoffs, not that they dry up completely. Wolf and I both talked about how like that's overblown, the fact that both those things just disappear in the playoffs. But they do, they they are fewer and further between. Like you can't just expect to live at the free throw line in the playoffs, and you can't expect to sustain yourself on transition offense. And I do wonder which one of those things ends up kind of like less translatable from the regular season to the playoffs because of this specific matchup. And then the other thing that I think will be interesting in deciding this matchup is for all that we talk about the Raptors half court creation struggles, the half court offense did get more efficient as Pascal Siakam came into his own as the season went on. And this is potentially a problem for the Sixers because it's like, how, what are they going to do to stop Pascal Siakam? Like if you look at the matchups this season and historically Joel Embiid has actually been really good at limiting Siakam, not necessarily in their last matchup, but historically he has been. But in this series, like in a playoff series, I don't think Doc Rivers wants to pull Joel Embiid away from the rim to yep. necessarily match up with like a point forward type player. Now, fine, if if they're going to be dumping it into Siakam in the post, sure, Embiid can obviously do that. I don't think they want him to necessarily match up with Siakam the entire way. Matisse Thibel is by far their best non-big option against Siakam and their best or maybe only dependable non-big defender at all. And he's not going to play in approximately half the series. So I do think that while the Raptors half-court struggles, you know, will be a thing in this series, I also think it's the Sixers might have some trouble finding ways to slow down Siakam. And if they can't do that, that'll help address some of the Raptors half-court issues. Yeah, I agree. And in the last game, we saw that uh, fully on display. I mean, Siakam was picking them apart with passing. He was able to, I think he finished the game with like 37 or 38 points. He was unbelievable, especially in the second half of that game. And the Sixers, that is something that I do, that I'm concerned about. The perimeter defense is not great. They have, like, historically speaking, the Sixers have struggled with guys that aren't in the Siakam mold they historically speaking when they had different rosters they tended to struggle with the shifty guards the guys who could you know kill you in the pick and roll all that stuff now because of the current construction where you have Danny Green who's I don't even know how old he is at the point of attack sometimes and you have Tobias who on his best nights looks like a good defender on ball and on other nights he's just getting absolutely cooked by guys it definitely, and then Maxi obviously size wise is just going to get overwhelmed by any sort of wing size player that he he guards on the perimeter. It does create issues. The one guy that like Sixers fans will get this because there's always one guy that like going into a matchup like everyone's worried about Pascal Siakam or Fred Van Fleet, like the names that we've come used to with the Raptors. The one guy I'm most worried about is Gary Trent Jr. And it's funny because you're like, well, Gary, like Gary Trent Jr. is like a solid, good player. Like what he is historically the kind of guy that has given Sixers the Sixers issues. Like just he's a hooper. Like the, the way to put it is like he's like the, the Raptors. He'll, t- he'll tell basketball. you that too. He'll tell you for real. And the Raptors are full of basketball players, and he is like the lone hooper on the team. And those kind of guys are the guys that give the Sixers nightmares. He played very well in the last game and I am definitely concerned when it comes to like who how we're going to attack because like as great as Thibel is and once again he's going to miss potentially three games of this series because of this stupid fucking decision he made which doesn't make any sense to me where he got the first vaccine but then didn't oh. get the like oh, come if on. you're anti-vax yeah. 
you're anti-vax and you don't get it, like I still have a massive issue with that. But the explanation for this just doesn't make any fucking sense to me. He was like, I didn't really think there were going to be any consequences. Well, what the fuck did you think was going to happen, dude? He also said, yeah. yeah, he said he got the first dose. And then when he realized that you could still contract and spread the virus, even vaccinated, he was like, well, then this whole thing's a waste of time. The, the very, the just like generic response people give without giving any thought to the fact that like you reduce the risk of hospitalization, the, the, the community of course. Uh, risk is lower, like all that stuff. He com- obviously does the usual, just completely negates that. But yeah, that's his thing. Well, I got the first dose, then realized I could still get it anyway and thought like, well, why am I going to get the Johnson and Johnson? It's a one-time <laughs> shot and you're allowed in Canada. Yeah, like he also then extrapolated and then started going down the path of like, well, I was raised in a home with like natural medicine and Chinese medicine and naturopathy. So, so it was like, he was also contradicting stuff because it's like, okay, well that wasn't an issue for you when you got the first dose. Like it was, you already betrayed your, your ethos, (laughs) man. Just go all the way. And now the only thing you betrayed is your team. So congrats. So I threw all my core values out the window when I got the first shot. And then I had a realization. I had a realization in between the two shots. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And and it drives me nuts that we are sitting here in a position where James Harden just left the Brooklyn Nets due to the fact that it was a potential Raptors Nets thing. Kyrie wouldn't be able to play in those games. Like it is insane. Like I can't imagine how yeah. Joel Embiid and James Harden are feeling right now. And it kind of goes back to what Cash was talking about earlier. Where like I don't, I don't think that because I think the way that Embiid has progressed as a player, and because I think the mindset shift he's had over the last few years, he's never going to quit. Like he, he is not, he doesn't seem like a guy who's ever, even in that four, even when we got swept by the Celtics in the bubble, I remember Embiid playing his ass off until the end of that series. Like he doesn't have, but if you look at the rest of the roster and you consider like I, I all this, all this stuff about like the Raptors matching up well and everything we talked about, there is a human emotional element to this series that it feels as though. And this is something that I talked about on the last intro, which was basically going into the playoffs. You kind of want to have some like down the stretch of the season. It doesn't matter as much. I think teams like the Raptors that have turned around their season and like try really hard down the stretch of seasons. Sometimes maybe we can overrate those teams a little bit going into the playoffs just because guys don't really care. But you still like you got James Harden halfway through the season. You want to have some signature wins. You want to have some things to feel good about going into the playoffs. And the Sixers didn't really have that. And then you have the rumors about Doc Rivers coming out. Doc Rivers, which we're about to talk about right now, fighting with a fucking one of the most respected reporters on the Sixers beat, Derek Bodner, about an issue that he is flat out fucking wrong about. The vibes from the Sixers perspective with the Thibel stuff, with the Doc stuff, with Harden's history, I've said it before. It's like I think the only thing that could possibly turn around the positive vibes in this series heading into this playoffs is just letting Tyrese Maxey be Tyrese Maxey because he has this energetic positivity about him that tends to rub off on his teammates. And I think that the Doc Rivers thing is the thing that I'm most worried about because even when you're up 3-1 in a series with Doc, even when you have all the advantages – speaking when it comes to whether it's star power or it's just you're a better team 
everything's off the table with Doc when when you go into a series with him because of his just ability to, or I should say lack of ability to make adjustments, like just a seeming refusal to make adjustments. And I think the backup center thing kind of perfectly encapsulates the Doc Rivers issue, which is the fact that going into this series, if DeAndre Jordan touches the court at all during the series, the Sixers are losing. I You can clip that. You can put that anywhere you want. The Sixers will not win a series. You want to talk about the on-off numbers with Embiid? With DeAndre Jordan, we're losing those minutes by 15 points every fucking second he touches the court. Like, it is so – he is not an NBA player anymore. He's so bad. And it's something me and Cash talked about when we signed him. It didn't make any sense to me. You're giving Doc something that you, that you can essentially just let him – play uh, his guy and it ultimately like if Paul Reed is not the backup center in this series which I think he will be because Doc in that basically rant against Bodner said that he will play against smaller teams he will play Paul Reed that needs to be the case because if DeAndre Jordan touches the court he's by far the worst rotation player and it's it's done it's cooked so I agree with all that the one thing I will say though is that and I know it's a, it's a one game sample. I don't, but I would also caution Sixers fans against maybe um, thinking that Reed can be any sort of like savior for them. Well, I completely agree. He deserves the minutes over DeAndre. He's a better player than DeAndre at this point. DeAndre is cooked. But in that last game in Toronto, where the Raptors, you know, came back from the early seventeen point deficit and won without Van Vliet and Ananobi and frustrated and beat and all that. Very similar story, as usual, where Embiid struggled offensively, but the Sixers were still plus eight with him on the court in 37 minutes. In the 11 minutes Reed played, they were minus 13, and that's where the game was lost. So I do want to count that, though. That was the first game that he has played in, like, two months, three months, and the 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 immediate impact when he was put into the game the negative impact was seen the raptor scored like eight straight points he was clearly all over the place and by the time that he settled down i thought he was fine i don't think that he is the solution by any means i've said it before i don't think bassy and reed are ready for this moment but right. it's the best option that they have and i think that Reed getting three games before the playoffs and two against pretty bad opponents, one where he crushed a G League Pacers or Pistons squad at the end of the season, might give him a little bit more confidence. And the one thing that he does really well is get contested offensive rebounds, and that is the thing that the Sixers have desperately, desperately needed. And they can get those against the Raptors, because for as good as the Raptors are in the offensive glass, one place their size actually has hindered them is on the defensive glass where they're a bottom 10 team. Yeah. yeah, their size and their scheme, for the record. Like, good point. scrambling around as much as they do makes it hard to box guys out and get yeah. defensive rebounds. That's part of it. Um, I think I, I kind of feel like the Sixers are a little bit boned with the backup center minutes regardless. Like, doesn't have to be boned as in it's going to cost them the series, but, like, I don't know that there's a good option for them. And I think in... In these games that they've played against the Raptors this season, like they've lost those games in like the the transitional lineups or like the bench versus bench minutes, like the and this is where like the the Raptors style of play and specifically the guys they bring off the bench, like they bring you know Achua and Boucher off the bench together, and those guys are just balls of chaos and energy, running around crashing the glass and like their speed and athleticism is not something that like any 
Sixers transitional lineup can really match, I don't think. So I think regardless, like it's going to be difficult for the Sixers in those minutes to like keep them off of the glass, keep them out of transition. And they're just going to have to like survive as best they can and hope that Embiid can stay on the floor for like 40 plus minutes, I think. Yeah. And I think that Doc did say that he's going to do that, like, which is, well, Doc says a lot of things, so we'll see. But, you know, he, Embiid has been ramping up his minutes as the the down down the stretch of the season. He's been playing 37, 38 minutes, partially because the Sixers just need him to play those minutes. Another part of it is the fact that they want to get him ramped up for the playoffs and hopefully play over 40 minutes. I think that this was something that, as Cash brought up, this is something you don't want to do from your first series in. The Sixers have had a history of easy first-round opponents other than that bubble series, which was craziness. And the if you look at, you know, whether it was the Brooklyn Nets a few years ago, the Wizards last year, like they were just generally sleepwalking through these series and just kind of like, well, we'll win the series. Who cares? Like, well, we'll 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 get to the next round. And then from there, the real challenges will begin. Now they have a hard one up top. The one thing that I'm thinking that the Paul Reed with Paul Reed and Thibault coming off the bench, being your two most athletic guys in the rotation that could be the one area that kind of bolsters the end of the rotation because as Thibel is amazing defensively and has these amazing plays and games and stretches, offensively, he's just as bad. And coming off the bench was where he was most effective with the Sixers last year and the year before that, where he was able to be essentially like this, as you said, this agent of chaos off the bench for the Sixers. And he might be, it might be able to make those rotations work a little bit better when you have Thibel playing 15, 20 minutes causing chaos. And maybe you're hoping that the offense doesn't sputter as much, especially because James Harden, since he has gotten here, has been able to at least lift up a little bit of Thibel's offensive ineffectiveness and make him playable during those minutes. Like the offensive ratings while he's on the court are significantly better with James Harden. So I do think that as much as I've focused on like all the things that I worry about in this series, there are a few things that I do feel good about. Once again, I feel like the half-court offense perspective will be better. I think hopefully Paul Reed can figure it out. Once again, the backup center thing is never going to be good. When you take your best player off the court, it's not going to be good. here i i don't think i do okay so i'll just give you a little bit of context so they don't hate precious like the player person but last year when the so first off precious went one pick ahead of maxi in the draft and we all clown the heat for taking not taking maxi and blah 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 and all that stuff and we love maxi he's our guy and last year at the deadline kyle lowry is getting you know potentially traded to the Heat or the Sixers or the Lakers, whatever. they they The rumor was Masai wanted more. He wanted Thibel and Maxi and Danny Green and Picks and all this stuff. And the Sixers were only willing to offer Maxi, which I didn't want to offer Maxi, but Kyle Lowry was the kind of player I thought that might have been worth giving up Maxi for at the time. Basically, you know, you guys, Raptors Twitter goes nuts and is like, oh, well, we're keeping Kyle Lowry. We don't need Maxi. 
they're rubbing it in our face. They're saying, you know, Masai sent a message to the league. Don't lowball me, blah, blah, blah. And Sixers fans are like, fuck this. I hate this. So gets to the offseason. And long story short, you guys end up getting Precious and Goran Dragic. And Precious starts off the year horribly on offense. Like, I remember following you guys talking about it on the podcast and then tweets just like, he couldn't do anything. Like his finishing numbers were terrible. Like he, he really struggled. And Sixers fans, of course, Maxie's doing well and they take their victory lap. So just a little bit of context there. And that's why I thought the last two games of Precious Achua going off for like t- over 20 points, hitting every three that he takes, I was like, this is kind of just karma for all yeah. that stuff for us. Now, so he, um, look, he, he's a special defensive talent regardless of what came on the offensive. And the upside defensively is special. Offensively, the development has been like gobsmacking it's unreal the development he's had from the beginning forget career-wise just beginning of the season to now um and it's it's more than just the three-point shooting like this is a guy who now a couple times a game will make a move or put the ball on the floor and get by and like makes you think like holy shit he's got that in his arsenal and you know he is still a sophomore he's young man and um to, to, to provide some context for you um with respect to like the Raptors getting Achua so Precious Achua um who's of course Nigerian was part of the giants of Africa program at one point, which is a program started and run by Masai Ujiri. Yeah. When, uh, at Masai Ujiri's, um, press conference to announce that he had signed an extension with the Raptors this past summer. And the topic of precious Achua came up. It's now famous in Raptors, Twitter and, and all that. Masai's exact quote was when he, when he saw precious for the first time after they had acquired him, he went up to him and said, you're mine now. Like basically, like I, like I finally got you, and at the which time, which is pretty it, creepy, honestly. It is, it is definitely, but <laughs> well, weird. Time, it it was like a a joke, you know, within Raptors Twitter and Raptors media time because it was like, okay, it's like funny, you know, he was part of his program and there's a connection there, but like, okay, come on, it's precious to chew. Like, how could are you really that excited to Adam? And then like, as the development has happened this year, there has been a lot more. Now people are starting to like share that clip of you know, I told them you're mine now in more of like a positive light as opposed to like a trolling light where it's like. Okay, well, maybe it's just like Masai did it again. Like he he saw something that a lot of other people didn't, and the scouting department did, and all that. And I, I all of which is to say, I understand your frustration with um, some of the shots Precious has hit against the Sixers in the last couple of games, but I definitely would caution against any Sixers fan who doesn't watch the Raptors thinking that it was like just some fluke or like he hasn't been that guy for the last few months. Like his in-season development on the offensive end has been rapid. It's been super promising for the Raptors going forward. And in terms of the three-point shooting. Um, he, he took one attempt, uh, in his rookie season in Miami, he went over one as a three point shooter. He took over a hundred attempts this year and it was a 36% three point. Like he, there's reason to believe he might just be a solid shooting big man. So, um, yeah, that, that's my precious Achua rant. Uh, so <laughs> it's, yeah, just, it's funny because so it's, it's just, just kind of just, going back just, the whole Paul, the whole uh, precious thing with Masai and like, oh, Masai did it again. We were people in the Discord were joking the other day that if you guys had taken Paul Reed, he would have been an All NBA already. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, well, Nick, Nick Nurse actually made a good comment about that uh, just this week, where like I, I don't know what the line of questioning was. I wasn't actually at the presser, but I saw some people tweeting where he said, like, to him and to the Raptors, they treat player development as like a twelve month a year thing. And so that that speaks to some of the stuff you'll see them do in season, or maybe like why is this guy getting minutes, or he's not playing, or whatever the case may be. They see it as like if they if they believe, for example, that Precious Chua has this like offensive potential that's been untapped and needs reps to come out, or 
th- that there is something there. You know, most people will see it and be like, why the hell are they letting Precious Achua grab a defensive rebound and run or go one-on-one with someone? But to Masai and Nick Nurse and, and the Raptors development people, they see it as because we believe he can do it and we need him to get reps doing it. And you know what? It might cost them a game in December. But it might also up their ceiling come April, May, and June, whether it's this year or next year or two years down the line. This is so foreign. This is so foreign to us. <laughs> We're literally I watched Doc Rivers coach the team for the last two years. I oh, man. you guys talking about young if Max if Ben Simmons literally doesn't decide to just quit basketball and just go retire and play Call of Duty full time, then Maxi isn't the starting point guard this year and like maybe is like getting spot minutes. Like that is the world that I've been living in. So all of this is very foreign to me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would just say like I have like loved Tyrese Maxey ever since he entered the league. Like I was heartbroken that he didn't wind up on the Raptors and especially so uh, in hindsight, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with, with having precious on the Raptors. Cause I think he is turning into this really incredible development story. I would still rather have Tyrese Maxey. And I think that it's, we're going to find out how real the three point shooting is. You know what I mean? Like he, first of all, was like the Raptors' best by percentage, by far their best three-point shooter after the All-Star break, which is wow. a credit to him and also an indictment of the Raptors' shooter. <laughs> right, like, yeah. Well, Fred Van Fleet didn't really play, and he hasn't been the same, which would be a big part of that, I would imagine. Shot right? under 30% from three after the All-Star break. His wow. knees his knees are just... I mean, you should see the the size of the ice packs. He's got banded, like, wrapped around yeah. his knees when he hits... The, he just yeah. played so many minutes early in the season. But the, um, the week, the week and a half off, I think, will should do him wonders. So here's what I'll say. Like early in the season, I was especially aggrieved thinking like, man, the Raptors could have had Tyrese Maxey. Now they have <laughs> yeah. a ridiculously raw big man who, you know, for the first month of the season or more was working with like a sub 40% true shooting, a big man. That's yeah, like I know. hard I saw your to tweets. do. So what happened was he started hitting threes. Okay. And all this stuff that they were trying to do with him before they still let him like experiment with his off the dribble game. And it's an adventure like him pushing the ball up the floor is an adventure. Like I know he hit that pull pull up three and transition against you guys. The last game that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't, that won't go in against any other team ever. (laughs) (laughs) Would have been nice if it bounced a few times before. (laughs) Oh yeah. All right. Edit that part out. uh, Eric, thank you. But yeah, what what I'll say is that that part of his game is still extremely raw. But what's happened is all this stuff that he was really bad at at the start of the season, he's pretty much just not doing anymore. Like they realized, okay, he's not a pick and roll player right now. Maybe he won't ever be, but he's a terrible screener. He doesn't have the pacing on the roll. He's not a good finisher on the roll. So now that he has like established himself as a credible catch and shoot three-point shooter, it's like... The stuff that he was doing before where he was just getting in people's way and like clogging the spacing and compromising their pick and roll game because defenses were just like blitzing Fred completely unworried about him potentially like getting the ball to pressures in space. That doesn't matter anymore because they can just have him spotting up and he's actually hitting threes and he's drawing closeouts too, which is allowing him to, you know, explode to the basket and actually like make something happen off of the bounce because he's able to attack an off balance defender. So all of that has flowed, I think, from the three-point shooting, and I really think the Sixers are going to challenge him to keep making those threes. 
Yeah, and, and we'll he will. Don't, don't you worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, I'm already having nightmares about it. Uh, I'll tell you that much. But I actually let, – let's talk a little bit about uh, series prediction here because I think that we've talked enough about – and everything we've talked about, it's so funny because I feel like we've the, – the main point of this podcast was to talk about why the Raptors are such a significantly weird matchup for the Sixers and why they can exploit some things. But – Ultimately, I do think that when it comes to the playoffs, we know it's not always been the case with the Sixers. It's not always been the case during the Joel Embiid era, but it just generally speaking, the teams with the higher end talent over the course of a seven game series do win the series. I I think I have an idea of which way both of you guys are leaning. Um, I, I want to get Wolfon's take on this first because I think I'm going to like his take more. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wolfon, what um, do you think? What do you think happens in this series? Um, and how many games does it go? And who do you think ends up coming out on top? I think that the Sixers are going to win. Probably, I think it's going to be a long hard series for them. Like, I don't think it's going to be fun. I think that the pressure is squarely on their shoulders and that's like a dangerous place to be like for a team that has so much on the line playing against a team that is just like playing with house money. That just sucks to be in that position. You know what I mean? And so like going into a game seven, I don't know if you can say that this is going to like affect the players the same way it's going to affect the fans. But like, I think your listeners are pro- like, if, if that happens, if it goes into a game seven, like y'all are going to be a lot more antsy, I think, than Raptors nation is going to be because. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, go back and watch game w- seven of the Hawks series last year. The whole, you can feel everyone about to throw up in the crowd. <laughs> so I think that to a certain extent, like that has to affect the players too. And everything you're talking about in terms of the vibes, like, yeah, we don't discuss that as much. Like we like to talk about, tactical minutiae and you know things that things that we can actually see and quantify versus like things that we we can't put ourselves in players heads so what's the point of speculating but you have to think that there's some impact of 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 like feeling that pressure for a team that just like has higher expectations uh both internally and externally so i think that it's going to be uncomfortable but ultimately i see them pulling through just because there are more pressure points they can hit. I think like your point about the half court offenses is probably the biggest one in the Sixers favor. Like it's a lot on Pascal's shoulders with the way that Fred is playing right now and potentially the way that he's ailing. Like, I don't know what his health status is, but thinking about how hard it could potentially be for the Raptors to score in the half court. I mean, they don't get to the rim very often as it is, but if you think about, you know, them trying to do it over the course of a seven game series with Embiid in the middle, it's going to be like very jump shot reliant, very reliant on, you know, Gary Trent going on a heater and Precious continuing to hit threes and Pascal continuing to hit every push shot he throws up from like 10 feet. And that could happen. But I have more faith in the Sixers being able to pull through with like the pressure that they can apply, whether it is like Embiid in the post and sort of just like slowly figuring out how to deal with the extra bodies, whether it is, you know, Maxi breaking down the defense at the point of attack and collapsing the defense. I just think they have more weapons. And as much as there are matchup things that level the scales, I still think that the the Sixers are probably the safer pick. 
So it's funny because I actually feel as though the biggest advantage that might not be being discussed in this series, other than Maxi, who I think is kind of that wild card that like, even with everything that the Raptors have have advantage wise with size and speed, like Maxi's had two of his best games this season against the Raptors. Incredibly efficient. Um, I think the Sixers, I don't even think Joel Embiid played in the first Raptors game, if I remember correctly. He didn't. He didn't. The, the game where Fred Van Fleet hit that game winner. If it, All I remember is the fourth quarter, and I remember Tyrese Maxey going on a heater down the stretch of that game, and the Raptors might have been missing guys as well. But I remember the Sixers choosing to go to three Tobias Harris post-ups in the last two minutes of the game instead of letting Maxey cook. And that is one thing that is a little bit concerning to me just generally speaking about like Doc Rivers and his decision-making and who he lets, you know, kind of like, he doesn't let Maxi be Maxi a lot of the time. And I, I am concerned in that regard. But the one thing that I would, that I really think that might be being slept on a little bit is Joel Embiid's defensive effort in the playoffs versus the regular season, because while he might have some of those conditioning issues towards the end of games, he still when locked in is an insane paint rim protector insane defender overall and there were games and there were moments where he showed that this year and there were long stretches where he just didn't give a shit and it might reflect poorly in the numbers and in the tape and all that stuff but I think a locked in Joel Embiid against a team that struggles in the half court could make a huge difference even with all of the Sixers struggles with the perimeter defense and all that shit so Cash give me your prediction Tell me what I want to hear. Let's go. So yeah, I think I think I'm maybe going to surprise you based on everything that we've said through. But <laughs> I, I'm I'm going Sixers and seven. I I do think that in like again for as much as everything I've said is why I think the Raptors are just the worst possible matchup they could have drawn in the first round. I think Joel Embiid. Um, I think he's actually improved enough as a player, which maybe doesn't get talked about enough because he's already so good. But I think the improvements he's made in his game will push them through. I think he is that much better than anyone else in this series, which is no discredit to Pascal Siakam, who I think is an awesome two-way player. Um, and and I just think in the end that will carry them home. The, them being the better team with the better player and home court advantage and potential games, I do think that will carry them home, but ever so slightly. And I do think the margin for error is dangerously thin for mm-hmm. a team that, as I mentioned, <laughs> seems uniquely equipped to fold if the pressure gets too much. And... The one thing I'll say too to, to Wolf on's point, because this is something I wanted to touch on, was like when Wolf, when you talked about um the like playing a team with house money, right? Like being a team with all this pressure on you and playing against a team with house money and how that sucks. It is very rare to me that like you would have a matchup like this where the one team is playing with house money, but it is also such an even matchup. Like usually when you think of those matchups, it's like you know, a one versus eight, or it's this clear-cut championship contender against this young startup that doesn't really have a chance to win the series. It's like, you know, can they just shock them a little bit and they're playing with house money? Like, it's so rare. And I'm trying to even think of, like, another example like this where you can say that this one team has all the the pressure on them and this other team is just playing with house money, and yet you can also say, but the matchup is so close and it probably should go seven. Like, that to me is what makes it so dangerous for the Sixers because not only are they playing a team with house money, they're playing a team that matches up well with them that probably can push them six or maybe seven games and is still playing with house money. And it's such a dangerous environment. Like, and Trill, I'm sure you can speak to this better than even we can just, you know, from watching things on TV, but like 
if if the Raptors can steal game one or if the Raptors can be in a situation where they're like up in a series or whatever the case may be or have the Sixers on the ropes in Philly and things start to go poorly in that next game. So whether it's the Raptors find a way to steal game one and then the Sixers don't necessarily respond by blowing the doors off in game two and it's like going down on the wire and they're facing the prospect of maybe going down to nothing or they come back home for game five and it's 2-2 and the game is like going down to the wire. Like that home court advantage in Philly, as I'm sure you know, can turn pretty toxic pretty quickly. And it's it just can. like yeah, no, 100%. All, all these things compounding on top of each other. Like I'm I'm going with the Sixers and Seven because I do think the advantage they have carry them home. But like my God, do I think it is like such a razor thin advantage. And I, I think they're like the margin for error is so thin that like one wrong turn here. And I not only do I think they could lose this series, I do think it's possible. Like it could get ugly quickly if things start to spiral and that crowd starts turning against them. And it's like, you know, Harden looks cooked. What I'm picking sixes and seven, but I'm I'm really saying like this could get ugly for them. Okay, so one thing before I say my prediction because what you're bringing up right now is a very good point, Wolfon. I'm going to make a prediction. Two weeks from now, we're going to be a week and a half from now. We're going to be halfway through this series, and Cash is going to go on pound the rock and say, "I wish I was, I wasn't a coward, and I picked the Raptors to win this series." It, it feels, it feels like that to me right now is what he wants mm-hmm. to say. But ultimately, I do think everything that we've talked about. I think why the Raptors do present an interesting matchup, and everything that you talked about is one hundred percent. All of this is one hundred percent accurate. I think. Nine times out of 10, I'm going to lean towards the team that has the best player. And I think that this might be, maybe this is the one time that I, that it is just the other way. And maybe it's the Sixers repeat history and, you know, they they lose to what people view as the inferior team and the Raptors just have all these things that they can cause issues for, for the Sixers. But ultimately I think I'm going to go Sixers in seven as well. I think that this, I honestly think that this is as close to a toss-up considering everything we've talked about, which is crazy to me because I think in a, with a normal coach, with a regular Harden, with everything that we've talked about with the, without the Matisse-Thibel thing, I think the Sixers could win this series in five or six. I yeah. think that because of all of the things that we've talked about, that they prob- it probably goes down to the wire. And I think that Joel Embiid needs to like just take over this series and ultimately is – like just prove he is the guy and can like in a way, even though it's getting back to the second round, this will be getting conquering some of those demons that he's faced in the past in the playoffs. And I think that this will be, has to be a statement series from him. And also like, you know, you mentioned regular Harden, right? Which we talked about all these different X factors, you know, precious Achua's shooting Tyrese Maxi, the coaching stuff, all of that pales in comparison to the X factor of like, it, like, what is regular Harden at this point? Like, what is the, the baseline for James Harden right now? Because I'm going into this series based on what I've seen from these two players in the last few weeks of the season, thinking Pascal Siakam's the second best player in this series. Yeah, and if that's I not that's true, fair. if James, if the Sixers have the two best players in the series, this is a much different conversation. And then I actually don't think, in terms of just, like, stacking the rosters next to each other, that it is particularly close. And then you're you're looking at way more things having to go right for Toronto to actually win, as opposed to like actually talent versus talent. It's pretty close. And if the Raptors just win like a few of these things on the margin, then they can swing it. And I think, you know, so like, here's an interesting question, right? Like 
you you mentioned what Kyle Newbeck uh, Newbeck suggested about like keep Harden and Embiid tethered together so you can run that pick and roll and like have them out there to drive the offense together. So let's say like the Raptors are set up where OG is guarding Embiid to start and like Siakam is guarding Harden and they run that pick and roll and it's just a switch. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, what are you getting out of that? Like, is that that's why I'm not sure about it, because like, can that pick and roll actually be their bread and butter? Like, I feel like that's dependent on Harden actually being able to break guys down one on one. And I'm looking at this Raptors roster and thinking like, who is attackable here? Like, maybe like I, I honestly think a better option for him might be to just go with like the small, small pick and roll rather than. Because most of the time, man, like the guys who are going to be matched up as Embiid's primary are guys like Siakam, OG, and Precious, like guys who can actually move their feet extremely well. And they have the length where you're you're not really going to expect that Harden's just going to break those guys down. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that the the whatever version of James Harden we get... The, the the thing that I hope for is that we get the first five games of James Harden that this week at week off of playing basketball will do wonders for his hamstring and that, you know, maybe that he can regain some of that burst and strength and being able to make a fucking shot like that. That's the thing that is like the weirdest thing to me is like all the stuff that you guys talked about with his struggles in Brooklyn, all the things that I've talked about with his struggles with the Sixers and how he isn't the same guy. The one thing that is the weirdest to me is like his three point shot is just not there. And it's not like it's not one of those things where like even open threes, it's not like just because he's not able to create that separation with the step back, like he's not hitting his open threes. He's not able to like just make the shots that we're used to James Harden making. And all of the other elements of his game are kind of magnified because of the fact that that shot is not falling. So I actually have to get out of here. I forgot that I have some something that I just got a text from my sister for. So I apologize that I got to get out of here a little bit early. Last thing before we get out of here, we made our predictions. Okay, so Wolfon and Cash, I need to ask. I'll ask you first, Wolfon. If this whoever comes out of the series, are they beating the Heat in the next round, or would you take the Heat over uh, the Raptors and the Sixers? Uh, I'm going to say that. Yeah, either one of these teams would beat Miami in the second round. Wow. I think whoever wins the series is going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Wow, okay. Uh, yeah, so I, I thought it was going to be bold when I said that, but Wolf, <laughs> oh, yeah, Wolf won stole it. So You're the I, heat culture guy. Yeah, no, I know, but look, I, look I, I've talked with Wolf on Pound the Rock this season about how I, I still like this heat team. I think they're a very good team. Yeah. I personally don't think that they reached the level I thought they could if certain things went right, and I, I – I don't have the same faith in them I did have the year they ended up making in the finals. Like I haven't had it the last couple of years. I think they're a good team that if based on the way teams are playing right now and the way these teams are built, I think one of the Sixers or Raptors would beat them in a seven game series. Now, the one thing I will say is like it, if, if say the heat coast through the first round and these two teams have this like seven game slugfest that we're talking about, that could help the heat. Um, maybe gain an advantage, you know, if, if it's, if game one almost ends up like a schedule win for them, that obviously could, could change things. But the one thing I'll say too, not that I would pick them to beat the heat, but I know the Hawks are not the same team as they were last year. I, I, you know, I don't think they're going to go on the same run, but I will say like the Hawks have to win two games to get into the play. I know that, but I think they will. I think they'll get that eight seed. Like I, 
I, I don't like the heat enough this year that I can just very easily be like, ah, they'll coast by a land, like no issue. Like I don't really want any part of having to play Trey Young in the playoffs. Um, yeah, I so, agree. So, <laughs> Believe like, me. I, I, I'm with you guys. I think the winner of this series actually will go get to the East Finals, crazy enough, even if it's Toronto. Um, but I think the Heat might have something to worry about in the first round before they even get there because I do think Atlanta, while not the same as last year, can still scare the shit out of someone in the first round. I totally with you. And by the way, we're recording this before the play-in game. This all hinges on the Nets just yeah. winning. Yeah. Or also, and also the Hawks. Like the, I say this now, and by the time the weekend rolls around, it might be like, well, the Hornets are the eight seed, and the Hawks lost by like forty-eight in the nine. Yeah, exactly. In, in the, the nine tenths for the second round. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I will say. Go Cavs. I want to see uh, – like, even though the Sixers might face the Nets in the second round, I just want to see that Heat-Net series badly in the first round to give us a, something else to look forward to. Yeah, although I, w- I wouldn't mind seeing the, the Nets eliminate the Celtics. That too, actually. Because You really can't go wrong. It would be – Imagine it, um, there's a path where I don't think it, – it's like I would less than 5%, but there's a path where like, you know, as we discussed, we, you know, we're saying we would take the Raptors over the Heat if they could actually get by Philly – and then it's like, well, imagine the Nets beat the Celtics, somehow beat the Bucks, and then it's like, well, now they don't have Kyrie in 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 games in Toronto in an East Final with the Raptors having home court advantage because they're the higher seed. Like, there's 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 a pathway there. So, wow, am, am I a low key maybe hoping the Nets? Get You're the high Celtics? on Raptors culture right now. You're, <laughs> yeah, I am. but no, I think. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, I think Milwaukee probably comes out of the East anyway. Yeah, so I, I agree as well. Yeah. I agree. All right. Well, Cash, thank you. I know Wolf on. Yeah. Uh, looks looks like we lost Wolf on. Yeah, it's all he good. was so <laughs> disgusted with my faith in the Atlanta Hawks that he just said, <laughs> F this. I have to hear this shit often enough on Pound the Rock. I don't need to listen to it on another podcast. He just left. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Great yeah, conversation. Man. And, Thanks. uh, Hopefully next time I talk to you, the Sixers didn't ruin my life or the Raptors didn't ruin my life. Yeah. So. All right. I won't say hopefully to that, but appreciate you having us on, man. <laughs> Have a good one. Peace, bud. Peace.